Big Sky, Big Potential. In association with Mills and Reeve, this is Eastern Promise. Achieving more together. Welcome to the Eastern Promise podcast, exploring the full potential of the East of England. I'm Mike Rigby, and this week we bring you the highlights of our live event, future-proofing the East of England's heritage. Held in the Frankopan Hall at Jesus College, Cambridge, this event brought together experts in sustainability, construction and conservation to discuss how we can preserve our historic buildings for future generations, but also ensure our built heritage plays its full part in fighting climate change. In this episode, we'll bring you the highlights of the first panel, and you can download the whole event on the Eastern Promise podcast feed. And finally, Bonfire Night is best enjoyed at organised local displays. But where will you enjoy the gunpowdery spectacle, eh? Let's find out in another explosive crowd sorcery. Wherever you are in our region, be it Huntingdon, Halston or Halesworth, there's no denying that the heritage of the East of England is embodied in its historic built environment. That includes everything from historic town and city centres to many civic buildings, private homes and business premises. That's a lot of buildings, all of which are difficult to heat, require power and hot water. And I'm sure, uh, educated lot that you are, you already know where I'm going with this. The carbon emissions resulting from that demand for power and heating are sizable, but knocking down those buildings and replacing them with glorious steel and glass edifices with every known tool of sustainability at hand overlooks the huge amount of embodied carbon these buildings already represent. To say nothing of the fact that many, if not most of these buildings, are fundamentally connected to our sense of place and community well-being. So, what's the answer? How do we future-proof the East of England's heritage? That's a question you're about to hear answered. As part of this episode, I'll be bringing you the first panel featuring Mayor of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, Dr Nick Johnson, Bursar of Jesus College, Dr Richard Anthony, Laura Ludlow, Principal Associate and Real Estate Professional from our friends at Mills and Reeve, and David Tittle, Chief Executive of the Heritage Trust Network. However, if you look on your podcast feed for Eastern Promise, you can find the full event waiting there for you. And now, let's hear from the most handsome and talented man the Frankopan Hall has ever seen. From the right, I'm going to, you, you obviously already know Dr Anthony, but can I ask David to introduce himself to you? Hello, I'm David Tiddle. I'm Chief Executive of the Heritage Trust Network. We're a membership organisation for charities, community organisations and social enterprises. 
that are in the business of recycling buildings. So our members rescue, restore, rejuvenate, reuse and manage historic buildings and other historic sites, mainly buildings. And our members come in all shapes and sizes and the end uses of their buildings vary tremendously um, in sort of from, from your classic heritage visitor attraction to homes and business space and art centres and what have you. I was invited here today, I think, as a result of our outreach officer, Leona, who's based in Norwich. And her work is connecting with community groups that don't have heritage in their title, but um, are nevertheless in historic buildings, either by choice or by accident, uh, but want to do the right thing by them and make the best of them. So that's what we're about. Thank, Thank you, you, David. You've obviously already met the bursar. Laura. Hi, I'm Laura Ludlow. I'm a Principal Associate at Mills & Reeve in our real estate team. Um, so I do a lot of work with uh, education clients, particularly helping them manage their property portfolios. Uh, I also lead our sustainability group at Mills & Reeve, helping clients work to develop and manage their portfolios to get to their net zero targets. Um, with another hat, I sit on the BPF Sustainability Committee and their Green Lease Working Group, looking at how we can make green leases more widespread across the industry. And finally. Um, thank you. Um, well, I, I'm, I think I'm here because of your enthusiasm. Mike. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, in fact, your organisation, when it talks about exploring the full potential of the east of England, in some ways, if it was just the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough area, for which is a combined authority, that is where I'm the mayor of and have been for the last two and a bit years. I'm here as a, as a guest as a politician uh, and as such this is not my comfort area when we talk about architecture per se, but the aspect about retrofitting is a role where obviously local government uh, has an important part. But I will confess now it's not an area that really in terms of actual specific targeting historic buildings the combined authority has been involved before. So I'm, you know, usual thing that a politician says, I'm in listening mode, trying to understand where the role of the combined authority, which does have an important part in retrofitting per se across the whole of the local area, could learn and could support. I'm, I'm particularly interested actually to get, to get into, into a minute. To a certain extent, Cambridge is looking after itself, but you've got a lot more historic towns like Ely, um, Wisbeach, Peterborough. Under your, under your Huntingdon's and uh, under your your ambit, so your your, your and, bailiwick, as it were. And, and that, that's very much. Thank you for picking up on that, because obviously, when I do speak, I, I speak always with a thought of the wider area of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, acknowledging the gems that are within that whole area and the importance that in the longer term and something I can report on is that within recent times we've developed an idea of a, a proper cultural strategy for our local area which would obviously then link in with the constituent authorities covered by that, that maybe Peterborough City, Cambridge City but also for instance Huntington District Council and how trying to work that in into a natural thread where the benefit of uh, focusing on cultural assets can also be good for the economy ultimately in terms in terms of devolution, the combined authority six years ago was set up with the idea of um, doubling GVA and um, making the economy grow. I mean, it's very much the narrative at the moment, making the pie get bigger. Um, but unfortunately, in this area, often it's kind of follow the big hitters, so investment in biotech, AI, agritech, you know, life sciences. And that's all very well and good, and they may well bring a lot of money into the local area, and that's good for the economy. But it's uh, it, 
not from a necessarily a position of strength, but it's a, it's a recognition that cultural assets also can drive the economy Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. It was interesting to see um, that uh, that's something that came out of the Labour Party conference, looking at cultural infrastructure strategy. But I'm going to ask... You'll, you'll all notice the, the triangular graph above us, the chart above us, which was provided by Dr Anthony. We've heard, I've heard, lots about how Jesus College has a wonderful story to tell. Could you just indulge us and tell us the story? So, um, first thing I should say, it's always a team effort, and I'd like to... The Domestic Versus, Stuart Websdale and I, work very closely together to deliver, in fact, a decarbonisation as part of a holistic strategy, because the goal is net zero. That's what it's about. And we're developing the means to do that across both our operational estate and our investment properties, and that's all in and around Cambridge. And the first thing you need to do is have a policy. I know that sounds very simple, but you need to get all your stakeholders together around some agreed aims, and we have a sustainability strategy and a responsible investment policy. It's important to do this first, because then hopefully you have the support um, and even those who might disagree have at least been consulted and therefore accept what is happening because what, what's going to happen is change. Um, and in a place like a university, where there is constant questioning and intellectual um, curiosity, that's essential. So we got our policies agreed in 2020. We have discovered since then that it is getting to net zero is going to be incredibly hard um, and potentially very costly. Um, and anybody who says they can do it quickly is either not being truthful or is doing it in a way that effectively cheats by using offsetting. So to drive, uh, to drive forward change, we established a decarbonisation working party on which staff, students and academics are representative. We found the energy hierarchy, which you see above you, many of you will probably recognise it, as a rather useful tool, particularly when engaging with our stakeholders who are, after all, the users of our buildings. And we're not, we're not a heritage organisation. Our aims are about education, research, learning. Um, but the environment we work in is a heritage one. And it allows us to focus on what's going to have a real impact. And there are some really simple messages that you can get across from, from using the energy hierarchy. Firstly, you need to think about energy demand reduction. And that is about building use and individual behaviour. So it's about when you turn the heating on, what sort of controls you have on energy use, especially heating, and getting the whole community to think about their role in the consumption of energy and giving them the tools. Yeah, so we are just launching our A to Z of sustainability. It's, I think, about to go on a website. Yes, Stuart's nodding. That's good. Um, at one level, this is a bit of glib because, of course, Going through A to Z, there are some things that are more important, something that, some things that are big, some things that are small. But I can't emphasise the importance of getting buy-in and getting everybody involved. Uh, um, again, we found this a really an helpful and useful way of getting that across. And this, this has very much come sort of ground up as well, bottom up. So you need to combine that energy efficiency measures, and that's where it becomes more of a challenge with historic buildings. Um, because that can affect the fabric and design of buildings. So, you know, the classic example is the use of double or secondary glazing. It's one we're all probably familiar with. Um, retrofitting exterior doors to open staircases. We actually have quite a lot of those. 
it's actually quite difficult because they are heritage buildings. Um, insulation is another option, and, and again, it has its challenges. Um, but ultimately, we all know we have to degasify. We have a large site here with a lot of large buildings and centralised heating systems, and with some, some limited space to retrofit new technologies. The first thing you obviously have to do is try and take advantage of any opportunities that come along. And we just completed a very large kitchen redevelopment project. Um, I, I have built the most expensive kitchen extension in the world. <laughs> I won't tell you how much it costs, because it is, <laughs> but it is unbelievable. Um, it, uh, knocking a hole in the side of a grade one listed building and putting in a very large basement below it as well. Um, as part of that, we were able to put in large ground source heat pump. Um, and uh, we put 50 boreholes, put them underneath our cricket pitch. Fortunately, it went over two seasons, cricket seasons. The cricketers weren't very happy. But um, it's, you know, it's all good. It's all, all running now. And it will be fantastic for the future. And that is a one in a 100-year project, one in a 100-year opportunity. Um, but how and when we can afford and manage the replacement of all our centralized gas boilers let alone the boilers in our 80 student houses that we have around here, which are all, they're not formally listed, but you would regard them as historic buildings. I, I, I'm not clear how and when we're going to do that, and that is an incredible challenge. Um, you can look for other renewable energy technologies, and PVs are a popular one, but how do they work with heritage buildings? Although after the King's College Chapel decision, which many of you will be aware of, perhaps anything is possible, um, in fact, I think this is a seminal moment because it reverses the question from can we install renewable energy te technologies to why can't we? My view is that we need to have a complete rethink of how we approach design and planning so that sustainability is at the heart of everything we do. Um, and so one of the first things I think you do if you're ever going out on a project is you should have a sustainability brief from day one. And as for planning, I think sustainability should not just be one voice in the room amongst the officers and consultants, it should be embedded in every decision that is made and everybody is thinking about it because that is the only way that we can get to net zero. And then, you know, as the triangle shows, we're left with a residual level of carbon emissions. And um, this is, um, I've got, um, if you go on to the next slide, there's, um, this is just illustrative. Apologies to Max Fordham. I think there might be in the room. I pinched them out of one of this room one of their reports. Um, so just take it as illustrative. This shows what happens to our buildings on our operational site when you electrify, you get rid of all the gas, and you've still got a bit left. And it's very difficult to get rid of that. So you end up with a conversation around renewable energy offsite and offsetting, and the latter's problematic. I think if you're going to do that, you have to try and do it yourself, effectively insetting, or doing it with somebody else who is near to, know, near to you. You know them very well, and you know that they're committed to the long term. Um, and there's also the cost of all this, and I definitely don't have the answer to that. Um, I'm feeling a bit more positive because we are involved in discussions around the City Heat Network, which some of you, again, may be familiar with, basically having an, a network of energy across the city for heating and hot water, and I think that is probably the real solution that we're going to have to look to. Thank you, Anthony. Um, I want to come to David in a minute, but first, Laura. Jesus College, um, uh, Richard mentioned student accommodation, and they've obviously got they've got a property portfolio. I want to invite you to sort of comment on that and sort of the key legal issues around uh, 
decarbonising heritage, particularly when that heritage is in use uh, with tenants and so forth. Um, thanks, uh, Mike. You're welcome. <laughs> um, the most pertinent thing, I think, from what Richard was saying um, is the bringing all your stakeholders on board early and getting that sort of collaboration going because that's the only way that anybody's going to get to net zero is by working together. Um, and from a sort of landlord and tenant perspective, that's a real um, shift in mindset from how historically the relationship has been. It's always been quite adversarial. Um, and there hasn't been that collaboration, but in order to, to get to net zero, what we're seeing now, our landlords and tenants far more willing to work together so making sure you've got the provisions in your, your leases that allow you, if you're the landlord, to be able to make the changes that you want to make, the environmental improvements that you want to make. And equally, as a tenant, tenants will have their own um, net zero targets as well that they want to meet. They want, might want to be able to do works as well to improve the um, environmental performance of their building. But again, it's all about the dialogue, the sharing of data. The data is so, so important. Um, in working out where you're starting from. Um, you wouldn't have your chart like that if you don't know where your baseline is. And how what you're doing to your building is um, getting you, hopefully, in the right direction, or if it's not, what you can change um, in order to make sure it does. Richard was saying about getting sustainability as the sort of undercurrent that runs through all decision-making on a project and getting that in right from the start and not sort of doing your design working out your project and then thinking, oh, well, we should have had a sustainability consultant and getting them in as a sort of an add-on. It's for everybody involved in the project to really get that input in right from the start. And you can do that as, from a legal perspective, as well as looking at your leases and your property documents to make sure there are no restrictions on what you want to do. Um, we're also doing a lot more work um, in our construction team with our construction contracts. So putting provisions into our construction contracts about as you've decided what you're going to build and what targets you want that development to meet, how you make sure that your building contractor and all your professional team work together with you to, to meet those targets as well. I mean, that's, that's such an obvious point, but it's, it's something that doesn't always get factored in in the way it should. And I'm going to come to Nick in a moment just to ask him about the way that political leadership can help embed these things. I know it's in, in some circles that uh, it's not, not the buzzword of the moment, but... I think I'm safe in saying that if, if the assembled here didn't think this wasn't important, you wouldn't be here. So, David, can I just ask you to reflect on what you've heard so far? Certainly, yes. Um, our members are very interested and very keen on, on this area, um, not least because of the recent energy price hikes, which have, has focused many people's mind, given people a very practical reason to engage with energy efficiency. But not just because of that, because they are charities and social enterprises, they have that wider, um, that wider remit, they have those values that they um, want to be socially useful. And also because funders are asking, you know, what are you doing about this as part of your projects and, and so on. So I, I'd just like to begin though by saying, we shouldn't beat ourselves up about being in drafty buildings because we're the good guys. By recycling buildings, we're saving embodied carbon, and that's a tremendous thing to do. It's a good thing with each building that we do that with, with each building that we retain. 
Uh, but it's also a good thing because it helps to shift the paradigm away from the idea that we always demolish and rebuild. Um, and we're also, in doing that, creating local facilities, enabling people to live, work and play locally, reducing travel, which takes the strain off roads and rail, means less need for additional infrastructure, which is also carbon heavy. And we need to keep making these arguments and, and keep the debate public. For example, you know, to get into those policy areas, VAT, it's a massive incentive to demolish instead of retaining. But even things like business rates, which um, incentivize out-of-town development over our historic cause. And Richard talked about planning and the idea that um, you know, sustainability should be in every decision in planning, and I'd certainly agree with that. And I, I would say that ideally there should be a, just a presumption against demolition in planning, that you start from the point that we don't demolish and applicants have to really prove the case on sustainability grounds as well as other grounds that demolition is, and rebuild is the best thing to do in those circumstances. Now, having said that, I think we need to do what we can. And I think the, um, the inverted triangle is what everybody is the sort of thing that everybody looks to. And as Richard mentioned, we look for those everyday quick wins in our operations, procurement and use of energy, thing, you know, all those little things like boiler setting, timing, maintenance, draft proofing insulation, types of lighting, um, and water saving. Um, different strategies for different types of buildings, like heat, in some cases it's appropriate to heat the building, not the space. So a lot of churches now are going for sort of under pew heating. So you're not trying to heat that vast area with its, maze, with its high ceilings, you're just heating the, the poor people that have to sit in it. Um, we have some, you know, some great videos on our YouTube channel with lots of practical tips. Uh, the one that really stuck out for me was to, um, to use fridge magnetics to, uh, to cover drafty historic keyholes. <laughs> Obviously, when important people come round, you need to send somebody around to remove the fridge magnets. But, you know, a nice little strategy. But it, it isn't just about our buildings, isn't it? We're, we're operating in those buildings and we need to look at our entire operations, like our, our transport. Can we incentivize public transport and use of EVs? Our purchasing, um, you know, giving weight to sustainability, our everyday reuse and recycling. When it comes to retrofitting buildings, there is plenty of advice around. Historic England are a great source of advice. They're doing more and more. And as Richard says, you know, when it comes to those opportunities for renewables, they are limited and they come at certain points that we need to grab the opportunity. And often with historic buildings, it's when we're doing those things like a, a contemporary extension or, or an enabling development that, that we can do. I was involved years ago in a um, restoration of six medieval cottages in, in Coventry. And we created a bit of sort of a new build at the back, which uh, was on the footprint of the old back extension. And we managed to get solar th thermal water heating in there, as well as rainwater ha harvesting for the building. So you just take those little or big opportunities when they come. 
Mike, I agree absolutely with what you're saying about Parliament. <laughs> It's, it's... I, I, one of the first interviews I did was with George Freeman, who's uh, a mid-Norfolk MP. And he wasn't at the time, but he is now a Minister for Science. And uh, the last question I always ask when I've interviewed MPs is, which other MP would you most like to be stuck in a lift with? And we talked about how the state of the building meant that wasn't an unlikely occurrence. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he sort of cheerfully said, oh, you know, a huge chunk of, chunk of masonry only just missed the chief whip yesterday. So, all right, OK, that's an everyday occurrence in a workplace. Um, Nick, you can't do anything about VAT. Nope. <laughs> what levers are available to you to sort of change the conversation on the lines that the rest of the panel have outlined? Uh, I have to say, as I was listening there, I was thinking, where am I going to go on this? Well, I was so, so, so first where of all, I if go? I was in, put into the sort of the big politics of it, uh, the, what is coming down the line, as far as I understand, from a, at, a, at a national level, is, is more devolution. So the, the idea of Metro Mayors, there's 10 of us now, but ideally possibly coming out in the autumn statement is, a, is an acknowledgement that devolution, which and the best examples would be in going cross-party would be Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester and Andy Street in the West Midlands. And I think they are seen and held up by different political parties as actually promoting their local areas and doing a good job of it in terms of promoting growth, economic development. And as such, I, I would love to follow in, in those, uh, you know, their, their examples. So you need more devolved powers. Uh, you talked about business rates. I, I, at, at the combined authority level here in Cambridge from Peterborough, I have no access to uh, that sort of fiscal uh, raising powers. But, but being a mayor that I think I want to be and a mayor that I think would be good for the combined authority area, the fact is that if you then had control over that kind of power of devolution, you might be able to be very specific about how you benefit certain areas and, and others, you know. So the importance of heritage and culture and how you then kind of apply your business rates could be the immediate thing. I don't have that power at the moment. What, what, I, what we do have, to some extent, is a control of the adult education budget. And with adult education budget, working with local businesses, there's an expectation that we you know, look at opportunities that are coming down the line. This is an opportunity. Yeah. Um, how, how much it is being seized by local authorities, be they at a district council, at a county council level, or indeed at a combined authority level, uh, I think is open to question. I, I, I see it. It's a great opportunity. I, I mean, I've got so many notes here which were kind of what are the, what, how, how difficult it is to do, but what potentially, you know, what could be the benefits. And if I think about elsewhere, not actually in a combined authority area, one perfect example of an adaptive reuse and economic revitalisation would be the Peace Hall in Halifax. Uh, and I, I, I know I, I don't know if any of you have been there, but I, I visited Halifax a long time ago uh, with a very good friend of mine, uh, long before it, it, was, it went through this whole process. But that's a perfect example, which is now heralded in the north of England as a great place to do music concerts, but it's a whole idea where they've got office space development. Now, I'm not suggesting that would be right for Jesus College, but there's lots of examples in Cambridge and Peterborough by focusing on that we can make more of our cultural assets and at the same time, once in a hundred uh, years, make sure you retrofit them in the right way. Mm -hmm. We can do that. We have access uh, to, to some budgets, you know, mostly around the skills agenda where we want to encourage people to skill up in those, th 
you know, to, to, into terms of retrofitting and have the expertise as different technologies come on. That, that's, that's good for growth. You see it as an area. Taken away from here, I think I will be going back to the teams that work with a um, Southeast Great Net Zero Energy Hub. I said, do we have a, a group? Do we have a, a specific um, team that focuses on the retrofitting of, uh, of you know, heritage buildings? I, I don't know. This region is so rich. I mean, 650 churches in Norfolk. It's the, yeah. the greatest concentration in the world of, of, of religious buildings. And, the heritage buildings in, in across your uh, your patch, your constituency. Uh, what an amazing uh, you know resource. Even even sort of the, the, the towns we think of as, as as run down and perhaps not you know need need some help. They've got amazing heritage assets that can be really part of that regeneration. I just want to come back to look because I see in your notebook. I'm sorry to have <laughs> very rudely gazed upon it. The the, the dread four letters of uh, NPPF. Now. One thing I wanted to ask you, and I hope this isn't, this is, this, I'm not going to put you on totally on the spot here. One of my concerns about the NPPF is, and I admit I'm, in, I'm probably one of the least informed people in the room on this, is to what extent is that viewed as <coughs> the base minimum of what we can do? And what extent is it kind of like people trying to say, well, no, it's not in the, it's not in the NPPF, we don't have to do it. What, what's your experience of that? Well, I have to caveat everything I'm about to say with I'm not a planning lawyer. So. Okay, Laura's not a planning lawyer. Um, but, um, I mean, feel free, feel free to attack the question well, in well, any I think, form way. Cause I'm... I mean, that, it, it raises an interesting point and actually follows on from Nick, what Nick was saying, is there is a general lack of consistency, I think, across the country as to how um, different local authorities apply um, MPPF considerations when they're looking at a... At a you've made an application to to maybe alter a heritage asset. And I think we really do need, if we're all going to get to net zero together, which we, obviously we need to do, we do need that sort of overarching um, consistency across the country. So um, developers putting in or property owners putting in these applications have a bit more certainty as to what is going to be considered and, you know, why could I make a... a adaptation to a building in Halifax that maybe I can't make in Cambridge or vice versa. Um, and I know, so there was a big piece of work done for the government, um, which Liz Truss actually, one, one thing she did do during <laughs> her short tenure was to commission a piece of work um, called Mission Zero, where they, Chris Skidmore, the MP, looked yes. at um, where the UK was and how it was going to get to net zero. It's a really interesting report. I highly recommend it if you're interested. Um, but as part of that, they did recommend a sort of wholesale, uh, getting net zero into the planning um, process, but consistently across the country. So I think that is something that they that needs to be looked at and needs to be thought about because we'll, uh, we'll go on to expect to talk about planning more. Rich has probably got more experience from having to do these recent developments. But in terms of um, <coughs> sort of making those applications, what have I missed? From the legal side of things, I mean, in terms of your experience, uh, particularly embedding sustainability in, in, in the process. Well, I think it's just making sure that you know if you're going through, through, through with an application to maybe change a listed building, obviously you've got all the different things you've got to think about. You've got to think about the planning, you've got to think about the listed building concerns, you've got to think about building regs. So many different um, consents that you might need. But there's that uncertainty as to how it's going to be treated. The King's College Chapel is a really good example, I think, that the 
my understanding, I wasn't involved, but my understanding is that the, it was not viewed warmly by the heritage officers for the council, but actually the um, committee put it through, the members put it through, because they saw the sort of wider benefit. So it's quite um, sort of intangible at the moment, I think, thinking what is the public benefit? And that is very varied locally. Mark, I just wanted to come in. I think there's one thing we need to realise here. Firstly, Laura said data's incredibly important, and it is, and we've done a baseline for all our properties. There's a lot of talk about chapels. I'm afraid chapels don't emit very much carbon. So actually, if you're going to focus on buildings, you need to look at the buildings that are emitting the most. The building that emits the most on this site is the building you're sitting in right now bizarrely, because we have modern systems in it. The heritage buildings that emit the most on our site are the buildings that people live in, because they're using heating and hot water. So whilst you can, uh, I'm sorry to be rude here, I will be rude now because it's very important, you can feel better by focusing on chapels. What we need to do is focus on the buildings where we're going to have the greatest impact. That is where people live and to a certain extent work. Because ultimately, what we're talking about is getting to net zero here. So much of that, sorry, is, to, is the behavioural piece, isn't it? Yeah. It's not just the, I mean, you can put in the technology, you can put in your insulation or whatever, but um, if the students then turn up the thermostat, <laughs> you, you're losing. And, and that's exactly, that's why I spent so much time in my presentation or talk saying that, because it is so crucial. My thanks to the speakers, the audience, the amazing team at Jesus College, our very good friends at Mills and Reeve, all our exhibitors, and way up in the box with Kyle from AV, our very own Darth Fader, Engineer 49. Again, you can find the whole event to be downloaded on the Eastern Promise podcast feed. And now... Boom, bang, a bang! It's that time of year where we commemorate a heinous attempt at high treason and the absurdly protracted and gruesome acts of retribution that followed. Oh, come on, the kids love it! It's time for another fizz poppin'. Crowd sorcery. Yes, crowd sorcery. Now, here's an interesting fact. In January 1606, King James I passed a law mandating the celebration of the failure of the gunpowder plot and, more importantly, his own personal deliverance from danger. The observance of the 5th of November Act 1605 required special church services, bonfires and, yes, fireworks. Do you know, you'd have thought old Jimmy would prefer something with fewer pyrotechnics, but no. The law remained in force until it was finally repealed, but not until 1859, during the reign of Queen Victoria. Now, we're here to celebrate and share the stories of your own community fireworks displays, and that's the safest and best option for a great community night out. Of course, this isn't for everyone, and there are many reasons why you may wish to have your own fireworks at home. So, if you are lighting your own blue touch paper this year, please make sure to keep your own pets inside and let your neighbours know about your plans so that they can do the same. 
And lastly, as head of external relations at the Quadrum Institute, Andrew Stronach points out, please check for hedgehogs before lighting any bonfires. Quite right, Andrew. When it comes to hedgehogs, we're straight to the point. What? 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 Someone who's definitely keeping up with the spirit of November the 5th is Sophie Skip, head of energy skills at EGA, the East of England Energy Group, who says... We always attend the Mulbarton Scouts display, the 4th of November this year. It's a lot of bang for your buck. Sophie, I see what you did there. And it supports the Scouts for the rest of the year. I can never believe how long the display lasts. We always cook some sausages on the barbecue and light explosives from Trafalgar Fireworks on the big day. Sophie says, I love the tradition of marking the 5th of November more than Christmas less tat and sugar than Halloween, and an important tradition to hang on to. That's Sophie Skip there, commemorating the aftermath of the failed gunpowder plot by torturing sausages with fire and hot coals, also with some light explosives. I shudder to think what she'd do with the heavy variety. Meanwhile, friend of the show, Dr Tammy Dugan, Life Sciences and Healthcare Partnerships Lead at the University of Cambridge, and special guest star on episode 77, tells us she often goes to the Welcome Genome Campus fireworks night, always grabs a hot drink and snack at the event. Genomic fireworks there, and not just in the lab. Well, it is, or at least it should be, a chilly evening, so stay safe, wrap up well, and have something warm to eat, and enjoy your time with your community. And on that note... I'm heading down the garden to my shed to set off some whiz-banging firework fun for all the team here at Eastern Promise Towers. Before I do, let me repeat my thanks to everyone who was at the Heritage event last month, in the audience or on a panel, to our excellent friends and sponsors at Mills and Reeve, who are a joy to work with and are doing so much to help take Eastern Promise to new heights. I shall be back in just seven days' time. Mark your calendars. Until then... Bye for now. <laughs> but okay, here we go. Uh, okay, that's the paper lip, and uh, oh, oh, I've got the match. Yeah, I've got the match. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production in association with Mills and Reeve. Achieving more together. To hear other episodes of the Eastern Promise podcast and to find out more about what we do, go to our website at easternpromise.org.uk.